Hey everyone, it's Blake Fletcher, my partner in crime on the show, the guy completely behind the scenes that makes everything tick and run and work well. My sound engineer and good friend Frank Leone has just had a baby and become a first-time father. I am absolutely thrilled for him and his wife and their new amazing baby, and Frank naturally is going to be taking some time off from the show and his, his day job and everything to be spending time with his wife and his baby. So rather than just take... Uh, two, three, four weeks off the show, I felt like over the next few weeks while Frank is spending time with his family, it would be better to alternate between episodes of the show that we already have completed, so new content, and then every other week we will switch to an old episode that I pick from the vault of the half hour intern episodes that I think is one of like the best episodes that we've ever done that I would really recommend someone listen to if they had not yet listened to the show. So what you are about to hear is an example of one of these. So I hope you enjoy this episode from the half hour intern vault. You know, I think that if people are spending their time on anything, they should they should be spending more time on creating a great product because I think that a lot of the times, particularly when I'm looking over the information product space these days, you know, you have guys preaching that you should spend 20 or 20% of your time creating something and 80% of your time marketing it, which, you know, might sound smart, but is actually terrible, terrible advice. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings, drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Track driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. I just want to say that you guys are in for a treat with this episode. Brent Underwood, the gentleman that I speak with, is one of the most creative, smart, interesting people that I have ever talked to. And a huge shout out and thank you to a listener, Keith Ramirez, who actually suggested Brent for the show. He stayed at Brent's hostel in Austin and uh, got a chance to sit down and talk with Brent there and was equally impressed by Brent and recommended Brent for the show. So that's how this all went down. So first of all, Brent owns a hostel in Austin, Texas called HK Austin, but that's not really what we talk about because um, as some of you guys know, I've already interviewed a hostel owner on the show. Um, so if you want to hear about that, you can go back and listen to the hostel owner episode. What Brent also does, and the main thing that we talk about on this show, is he is a partner at Brass Check, which is this amazing cutting edge is like the wrong way to even put it just absolutely mind-blowing ideas that these people come up with as a creative advisory and marketing firm and they do work with everyone from google to tony robbins to tim ferris to american apparel and tons and tons and tons of big name authors and the list just goes on and on and on so brent has created marketing plans for over 20 new york times best-selling books he works with music artists as well he tells a story about how he broke a music artist um, here in the U.S., well, actually all over the world, and got them record offers for um, every major record label when, you know, months before no one even knew who this person was. It, it's one of the more incredible stories I've ever heard. So anyways, without further ado, here is Creative Marketing Guru. Brent, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. 
Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I am like very selfishly excited to have you on the show because as someone that recently started my own business, I could use all the help I could get, like <laughs> advice, any tips you got. And not only are you this like marketing guru genius, but you also started your own business last year and had to really, really apply all this crazy marketing knowledge that you have to your own thing. So I imagine that that kind of like has really shaped some of the marketing ideas that you had. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to chatting. Awesome, man. Um, why don't we start with your history a little bit and how it is that you became a partner at Brass Check? I, I, uh, it's so interesting to me that you could like hold this prestigious position at Brass Check at such a young age. How did this all go down? Sure, yeah. Uh, it all came about as I was... I went to school for finance and real estate, so I didn't really have any background in marketing or books or... Uh, anything in that way, but an author that I looked up to and kind of followed um, for a while named Tucker Max was looking for a research assistant. You know, he kind of just put out a blind tweet on Twitter uh, looking for somebody to help him organize his thoughts for his upcoming book. I reached out as well as I think 3,000 or 4,000 people or something along those lines. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, apparently it was a pretty hot position. So, you know, Tucker made us go through a bunch of different hurdles and hoops and all sorts of little trial periods of testing us out if we'd be a good fit. And after, I guess I was one of the finalists and after about a week, he's like, you know what? You're you're just not that great at this, but I like (laughs) you as a person and being a generous person that he is, he offered to introduce me to his friend, who at the time was working on a book. His friend was a guy named Ryan Holiday. And at the time, Ryan was 23 or 24, and he was a director of marketing at American Apparel. So I figured, you know, this guy obviously has something uh, good to stay or something that he could teach me. This is like, uh, <laughs> we talked about this a little bit before, but this is so, so incredible to me. So first of all, Ryan Holiday is, is now a big author. Like back then he wasn't. And I, I like fell in love with one of his books. Uh, but uh, the fact that he was the director of marketing for American Apparel at 23 years old is absolutely insane. Like I can't even fathom that. That, that just blows my mind. Yeah, no, he's he's certainly, you know, people say the term whiz kid. I would say Ryan's certainly a whiz kid. Um, he's he's as sharp as they come. And at the time, he, he hadn't written a book yet. So he was working on a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, kind of his first entry point into the publishing world. Uh, it was about the things that he learned, you know, working for Tucker, working at American Apparel and working with some other authors. And Ryan's deal to me was kind of like, you know, I can't pay you, but if you'd like to work for me for six months for free, I'll teach you everything that I know about marketing. And it uh, seemed like a pretty good deal at the time. And looking back, it might have been one of the best decisions I ever made because uh, Ryan taught me just so much and opened up my eyes to kind of the world of publishing, marketing, uh, media manipulation, just everything that I really had no exposure to in school. And so shortly after that, due to the success of the book, Ryan and Tucker started a company uh, called StoryArc. It was a kind of an all-in-house book publishing and marketing and kind of advising company that grew to be about, I think we were 12 or 13 people. And I was, I was the first employee in that. That company ended up splitting up uh, about a year and a half ago, I think. And then Brass Check was formed with three partners, including myself and a guy named Niels Parker, who is the who's Tucker Max's editor for a really long time and just probably one of the best writers in the world. And so the three of us kind of started off Brass Check, and shortly after, we're joined by a fourth partner, a guy named Jimmy Sonny, who is the former 
managing editor of the Huffington Post. So he kind of is another publishing badass. Grew that from, I think, 300 million page views to 4.5 billion page views or something along those lines. And so together, yeah, today we just kind of advise, consult, construct uh, a bunch of books. We work with different startups, media companies, and uh, a few musicians as well. So it, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's certainly a lot of fun. That's yeah. Your company is so interesting, man. When you click on the um, the partners piece on the website for Brass Check, and you're looking over the people, that other gentleman that you were just mentioning that you guys brought on later from Huffington Post, it's like it said that he was the uh, like basically like their head editor, like the lead dude yeah, so- at 26 years old. <laughs> which again, it's like who are these young? Like you guys are all so young to be having the success that you're having. It's it's absolutely amazing and so inspiring. Yeah, I'm I'm extremely humbled to be able to be around those three every single day because they are all certainly smarter than myself, um, and I learn <laughs> from them every day. And Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy was number two right after Ariane Huffington, and he kind of built that from the ground up. And so he was another again, publishing badass. And so all together, yeah, it's quite a formidable uh, collection of people at this point. Yeah. And so with Brass Check, it looks like you guys do a lot of marketing for authors, like for books, for media. Um, I know you also represent some musicians. Um, is that kind of your your niche? Is that it's not so much products, but more, well, I guess a book is a product. Um, but I don't know. There's something like a little bit different about all sure. those things, you know? Yeah, it it all kind of started with books. Books was almost the exclusive thing that we did for the first bit of time, just because you know Tucker had so many contacts in the uh, publishing world, and Ryan working for Tucker had really crafted his skills in the publishing world as well. And Neil's being an editor, it just made sense that you know we would keep we would stick to books for a while. And at the very beginning, you know, we were mainly marketing books um, for authors once they've kind of like they'd sold it to a publisher. They were looking for a little bit of outside PR support, maybe some different crazy ideas um, to kind of get some press attention. And they would come to us and we would help them out. And, you know, due to the success of some of the first books that we worked on, you know, word of mouth took over. And at this point, yeah, we try to I think we've worked on about. 30 New York Times bestsellers in the last few years. Um, and it's just every day we get, ex- we just, I feel very lucky for the clients that we get to work with because in a way I get paid to read, which I think everybody should do more of. And so it's a pretty, it's a pretty good gig. I, I'll put it that way. Dude, that is awesome. Um, I also saw like on the uh, on the musician side that one of your artists is Zed's Dead, which is ironic because tomorrow I'm flying to Miami to leave on Holy Ship, um, and I saw Zed's Dead for the first time on Holy Ship a couple years ago, and uh, it was awesome. But how how are you also managing these artists? No way, nice. So yeah, Zed's Dead, they're great. I actually spoke to them uh, two days ago. They're, they're working on a next album right now that should be pretty pretty fantastic. Uh, the musician thing all came about was a friend of mine in New York. I was living in New York City at the time, and he's a young manager. He was managing an artist named Young and Sick. And Young and Sick at the time didn't have any songs out. He was kind of you know trying to think of how can we get this out in an interesting way to kind of create some attention around it. And you know, I had just started working with Tucker and Ryan. Uh, a mutual friend connected us, and we kind of chatted a little bit, hit it off great, created what we felt was you know just a genius marketing plan for getting his music out there, 
And it turned out to be extremely to be extremely successful. Uh, Nick Young and Sick ended up getting record deals from uh, every major record label out there within a month or two, I think, from even launching the first demo, which the timeline of that is just insane. And since has gone on to perform at you know Coachella, ACL, uh, all the major festivals around the country, and has really blown up. And kind of due to the success of Young and Sick. Um, he has an agent, a guy named Max Braun, who represents a lot of electronic artists. And so that's how I got connected with Zed's Dead, um, Elangelo, another guy that we work with, and a bunch of people in that world all come from a uh, kind of success of Young and Sick, I would say. Okay. I have so many questions about that. So <laughs> first of all, for the Young and Sick thing, who was paying for any of this? Like if he hadn't even broken yet as an artist, like who was paying for this? One thing that uh, nobody is the answer to that question. The reason that nobody was paying for that is because... Nick, um, and this is, I guess, a lesson in itself. He's such a nice guy. So if you ever meet Nick, young and sick, he's probably one of the nicest people you ever meet in your life. And you just, you know, nice people you just want to help out. You know, he was a nice person and he created amazing art. And I really believed in the art and the music and the sound and just wanted to really have a sandbox to play in and see if certain ideas would work. When people are paying you, you know, some are book clients, they have certain expectations and they're not down to do certain things. Nick really early on is like, listen, you know, we have nothing to lose. Let's just go for it. And so, you know, it was a sandbox to explore around and test ideas with. And that's kind of like uh, what kept me involved with it. And it was just an extremely rewarding experience because now Nick and his manager, Aaron, are two of my closest friends in the world. And we've gotten many clients from it. And now kind of the stunts and things that we've did early on, I've seen reprinted in the wall street journal la times all sorts of different places talk about kind of the early days of young and sick and kind of the, some of the stunts that we did back in the day okay cool so you can talk about it that was going to be the other piece so that was going to be like is this like your secret sure. sauce and you're not allowed to say like what some of these things were like how the hell do you get all these offers for somebody i mean, I mean in today's like music landscape yeah so like i mean with him early on you had to think about what's the story going to be because Anytime the press is looking to write about something, they want what's the story, you know, what's the hook that they can really latch into and create a headline around or create um, a story around. And Nick sings in a pretty high octane. He's he's a pretty high singer, so it can easily be confused with a girl if uh, he's <laughs> if he's not singing uh, in a certain way. And so, you know, early on, we kind of went with this anonymous thing. Uh, a lot of artists have done it since, but at the time, it wasn't as played out, where we weren't going to release any press photos. Uh, it was always going to be referred to as he or a she or a they or a group, but never, like, consistent. So we would always confuse people. I remember one time we had Spin Magazine on the phone, and I would alternate between he and she every other sentence, just driving the person insane, oh, trying to damn. figure out uh, who this person was. Um, but as far as getting attention for it, you know, a lot of times I think people start and they're like, you know, how can I be in the New York Times? And that's not the best way to do it. You know, if, if anything, Ryan outlined this best holiday in his book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, is, you know, there's this concept of trading up the chain where, you know, you kind of start with a small blog that might have a smaller audience, but significantly easier, uh, significantly lower entries to bear or barriers to entry. So for us, you know, the end goal for the first demo we were ever going to put out was to get onto Pitchfork. You know, Pitchfork is, you know, kind of the the curator, the tastemaker in the scene. And we knew that if Pitchfork got a hold of it, a lot of other blog attention would come. But instead of trying to send, you know, a thousand blind emails to Pitchfork and never getting to respond to, a better way, way to look at it is like, where does Pitchfork get their stories from? You know, what blogs do they read? Go down a level and try to figure out, you know, like what they, those guys read and kind of like, can we get picked up on there and translate that back into a Pitchfork article? So 
there's actually a blog named Rose Quartz. It's called, I think it's rosequartz.blogspace.com. It's a really small blog. But Pitchfork, uh, we've kind of like heard through the grapevine, always looked towards Rose Quartz to like pick up kind of the new and interesting sounds. Now how, do you find, so then, how do you find out info like that? That one was just kind of like a through the through the grapevine. We were just asking around, asking different people. But another way to do it is like go to a Pitchfork writer's Twitter account and see who he follows, right? And so if he's following some small blog, then if you can appear in that guy's timeline, then you have a better chance of you know at least being on his radar mm-hmm. than uh, a blind email. So that's 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 kind of another way to do it. And then you know once once you do get picked up by that smaller blog, don't leave anything to chance. Certainly, you know then we Rose Quartz wrote about it. I think on let's say a Thursday, uh, and then sure enough, Pitchfork wrote about it on that Friday, the following day, and you know from there Nick started to get a little bit of attention, um, and then he got a smallish record deal offer from from France. They they offered him I you know like low six figures let's call for a couple albums so it stretched stretched out and you know different payment structures it wasn't gonna be enough to live on even wait brent hang Um, on one sec so did you uh did you how you said about not leaving things to chance after after you got picked up to do an article on rose quartz did you then reach out to pitchfork or pitchfork just reach out to you or they they just posted it without even letting you know um because indeed they were reading it Again, like, I, like uh, yeah, you're you're right to pick up on that. We didn't leave anything to chance. We shot that, shot the email over, shot the link to the article over to Pitchfork uh, from an email account. You know, we just kind of created an email account, sent that over, said this this might be something that you're interested in. And sometimes that's all it takes to get in front of a to get in front of a blogger because you have to figure, you know, they're always looking for content. So you know, kind of tying back into an overarching thing that is, if you can create something good and something worth talking about. Uh, Bloggers would write, love to write about it. There's, a, I think, there's a lot of times misconceptions that you know it's difficult to get press, and you know, like they're kind of holding all the cards when really it's kind of a, a seller's market. If you have something interesting to say, and Nick's Nick's music at the time was interesting enough, where we know that you know one tip over there um, could probably do it, and sure enough, uh, it did. I guess. Wow! Awesome, man. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. And so then come time to release a second song, we knew we had to do something bigger. And another thing that we, I try to think about when we're doing marketing is kind of like, let's call it a handle. So something that you can pick up on the story or product and carry it over to your friend. So when you're going to a friend, and how many times has your friend said, man, you should really check out this music. You think you'd like it, and then you forget about it. But if it's in a context of a story, it's like, oh, did you see when this band did this so like you know, did you ever hear about when the band released that spotify album that was completely silent so the fans would just play it overnight but it would just charge spotify over and over and over to like uh to their account and they ended up making i think a hundred thousand dollars about on it i didn't but i won't forget that now that's yeah, crazy exactly. <laughs> so we were trying to think of like handles like that and so at the time uh nick was still anonymous still nobody knew what he looked like um at the time, we didn't have any social media presence at all. And so we really tried to play into the anonymous scene and all that type of thing. And Tor was was kind of just becoming pretty popular, you know, like the the dark web, or what they call it, like the underweb, where, you know, it's a seedy underground where drugs are sold and the silk market was down there and all these different types of things, very encrypted and anonymous internet. And so kind of in passing around drinks, as the best ideas typically happen, uh, we, th- we thought, what if we release a song on tour uh, instead of releasing through a major publisher and kind of go about it that way? And so, you know, after a, bit, a little bit of planning, 
we created a Tor onion is what they're called. It's kind of like a page down on the Tor browser. Um, pitched it to a guy at the Business Insider and we we're like, you know, have you heard about Tor? It's really crazy. You can buy like guns down there and drugs and all these different things. And he was interested enough. And then at the same time, we we're like, and, you know, this musician is really is releasing a song down there, which is crazy. Um, and so the first pickup was a business insider pickup and it was a outline of tour. And that article just took off. I think it did 1.4 million views or something along those lines. And then, wait, so you were, you were writing to this, to this person, a business insider on the guise of just like, Hey, have you ever written an article about tour? Let me kind of tell you about it. And not under the guise of, Hey, uh, we want to tell you about this artist. Right, exactly. So we were kind of baking that into the story as part of this story because we knew that like we'd go in for a more specific ask afterwards, but just generally getting the name up there to begin with was kind of the first part of the p- first part of the equation, I guess. Yeah. And uh, like I said, bloggers are always hungry for great content. So if you can give them an idea like that, you know, they have a page view quota, so that probably met his page view quota for the month. So really, you know he should be thanking us in a certain way of looking at it, I yeah, guess. Totally. Um, so you <laughs> but, were you were like blowing my fucking mind right now like all like people should be paying you so much money for like i don't know how much people pay brass check but it should be crazy amounts of money like these ideas you've only gone over a couple of ideas and it's like unbelievably unique and good yeah and and this one even got even better the the thing that really got the record deals is that after we had the thing on business insider and so we had a small small mention of nick on there you know it was like and this la band young and sick released a song on there then we went over to a reporter at forbes that covered kind of security and privacy and things that i knew this would be up their alley and i wrote to him and i was like listen you know I, i read this big article from business insider i saw it blew up very interesting um i work with the the musician that that is mentioned in the article, Young and Sick. And in fact, he not only just released it down there, he turned down record deals to release it down there because he stands for privacy so much. You know, and at the time, privacy was kind of one of those news topics that was really buzzy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with that many kind of hooks in one email to the to the reporter, he quickly picked up on it. He wanted proof that there was record label deals that were being denied to put it down there. And then the headline that he wrote was just, you know, I couldn't have crafted it better if I wrote myself. The headline on Forbes was, why this artist turned down six-figure recording deals to release a song on the darkest part of the internet. And that was, <laughs> and this is, this is the second song the guy's ever put out, you know? So if, if you're watching his career, you're like, wow, damn, his first demo was on Pitchfork. Now he's written about it on Forbes and on Business Insider. And it was kind of a, a ball of momentum. And and, if, point, and again, if he didn't meet you guys, it would have been like nothing. I mean, it would have been like anybody else. You know, he would have like put him up on his little personal SoundCloud or something, and that would have been that. Sure, I think that like he still would have got there because his music is so good. But like, it was certainly pouring some fire on the ga- uh, pouring some gasoline on the fire, and, and kind of uh, helping it along. And then from there, you know, again, not leaving anything to chance, sending that link around a little bit uh, to more music blogs. Um, as well as major labels, you know, just inquiry forms on major labels. And then his manager, Aaron, does have some connections uh, within the music industry and kind of getting that article in front of the right people. Suddenly there's an urgency like, wow, this kid's blowing up after two songs. And then shortly after, yeah, the kind of record label deal is just kind of flooded in. And he ended up uh, over at Capitol Records and then ended up later signing a publishing deal with Universal Records. And at this point, yeah, like I said, it has a very successful both music and art career. That is so cool, man. That is so <laughs> incredible. So earlier, before you even kind of got into that story, um, when you were talking about the different things 
that um that Ryan Holiday, one of your partners at Brass Check, taught you about when you started working with him was media manipulation. So I like I wrote that down because I know that that's what his first book was about, and it, well, one of the topics covered in his first book. And I, I haven't read his first book yet, which I need to. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you more about that concept. But I, I feel like you kind of just went over that concept. Is that right? Yeah. That- that's a lot of it. You know, Ryan back in the day was a little bit even more, you know, working with American Apparel. He had the freedom where Dove, the founder, you know, is a very creative guy and kind of open to doing whatever necessary to kind of get media attention. And Ryan had a great, again, sandbox to play around with. And he would just do, you know, trust me, I'm lying. I can't recommend it high, higher, but uh, it kind of outlines it in even more detail. But sure, just kind of giving any bloggers what they would want for the perfect story and kind of like running with that story, whether they're there's half-baked truths in there or anything along those lines. Um, yeah, there's certainly a world that I had never been exposed to and made me question pretty much every single article that I read online to this day. Uh, I know that there's somebody behind it doing something to influence uh, the content within it. So it was certainly a uh, a groundbreaking book in it's, many ways. Yeah, man. It's such a crazy world that we're living in and like the things that, yeah, that you don't see, um, that are just there. It's, it's so in- like, it's interesting as soon as anyone like pulls back the veil on something like that for you, which like, I didn't really know about this until you said this, but, uh, in a few weeks I'll be interviewing somebody that does, um, uh, whatchamacallit, like influencer marketing for, Mm -hmm. you know, like Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. And, uh, like I, you know, when I first learned about that, I was like, you gotta, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is what's (laughs) happening. Like, no way. And then it just changes the way that you are on Instagram and, you know, it changes the way you look at any photo. It changes the way, and you know, for you, like, and now learning this, like now when I read any article anywhere, I mean, half of the articles are basically written by the companies themselves. Like, you know, you can see that in the article. It's very obvious. But even these news stories that that are obviously written by the news organization might have had a big influence by you know any of the the businesses mentioned in there. It's God, it's just so interesting and right, terrible. And go, it's interesting and of, terrible. Exactly, and tracing back even to like what we did on a small scale of like trading up the chain, a small blog to a bigger blog to a bigger blog. You know, somewhere along the lines, somebody assumes that it's been fact checked. So you know, your local blog might not have the fact checking standards that let's say NBC News does. But NBC News, so say you start with a local blog, then you get on a little bigger blog. The local blog doesn't do any fact-checking, but then the, the medium-sized blog isn't going to fact-check because they assume that the other one did. And then the next size blog isn't going to fact-check because they assume somebody else did. And then eventually, you know, how Ryan says, uh, and that's how unreal news becomes reality, is kind of, you know, uh, as you're trading it along, there's a certain expectation that somebody's fact-checking when in reality probably nobody is. Yeah. Ah, just so crazy. And I, I, from what I read on Amazon, that like the the very latter portion of the book, Ryan is kind of saying that this needs to change and that we shouldn't really be doing this anymore. Yeah, certainly. You know, because his, I remember having this discussion with him prior to putting out the book. He thought this was kind of going to end his career as a marketer. He was writing it because he wanted to expose it because he was tired of kind of people getting hurt because of the way the media cycle worked and all that type of stuff. Um, when in reality, and Tucker was the one that pointed this out is that more people just kind of start reaching out to him to try to have him do that for them um, and was kind of the basis of the first company that started StoryArc. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, dude, you answered so many of the questions that I wanted to, in, in that story, <laughs> you answered so many of the questions that I wanted to ask you, um, just about some different like marketing things here and there. And like, I, for instance, on your site, I, you talk about helping artists, um, maintain their media narrative. And I'm just like, what even does that mean exactly? And like, how essential is that? Um, but it, that obviously all makes sense through that story. But I, I guess I wonder it like, a lot of people try to tell you that that you know cream will always rise to the top and if you put out a great product like it's going to get you know attention anyways like to what extent is someone like you that that, that has worked on so much uh in the marketing world and has had to manipulate media and stuff like that to what extent do you believe that that's true i mean it's very interesting and difficult when um like for someone like myself. So I'll just go ahead and open up here. Like my personal story starting this podcast. And you know, I, I personally didn't even have any like social media presence at all, like on a personal level before starting this podcast. So then I had to like create all these things. And, and then I, I launched the podcast and I'm like, okay, who do I reach out to? So I just start telling all my friends and it's like, well, how many friends do I honestly have? You know, like that I can tell about my podcast. And luckily now as I get, get better at the podcast and everything, I'm starting to get more press and I was featured by, um, this big app and stuff like that, which has been super awesome. Um, but it's this very scary thing when you start your own business and you're like, dang, like, am I supposed to just wait here for success? Like if you're, if you're a singer and you have an absolutely astounding voice, are you just supposed to wait for people to hear your astounding voice? Or do you feel that there is almost a need in today's world to like create these media narratives for your brand and for your business? Otherwise it's just going to get, you're just going to get swallowed up in this never ending amount of content. Yeah. So I think that, um, part of what you're getting at is kind of a field of dreams mentality where if you build it, they will come, which, you know, in today's day and age may or may not happen. But, um, you know, I think that if people are spending their time on anything, they should, they should be spending more time on creating a great product. Because I think that a lot of the times, particularly when I'm looking over the information product space these days, you know, you have guys preaching that you should spend 20 years. 20% of your time creating something and 80% of your time marketing it, which you know might sound smart, but is actually terrible, terrible advice. I was actually listening to a podcast interview with a guy who runs an extremely successful motivational website, and he says that he spends a third of the time creating the content and two-thirds of the time marketing it, which, again, I think is terrible advice and not going to create anything significant that will last over time. Um, but that being said, once you have spent that time and you do have something that you think can really stand the test of time, yeah, you can't kind of sit back. I would start, uh, by reaching out to various bloggers. Once you really kind of craft that story, like going back to the young and sick story, we didn't go out and just say, Hey, this guy's music is great. It's like, Hey, this guy is doing something interesting. And so, you know, if you want press, you should probably do something interesting. You know, that's the first way to start it off. Yeah, and you have then, to, right? That's all that's, I don't know. That's sad. But I mean, obviously that's the way that it is. You can't just walk up and say, Hey, I make good music. It's like, yeah, dude, get in line. Like a lot of people make good music. So you right. really need to say something different. Right. And everybody's kind of waiting back for their big profile in their trade magazine. If you're an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Entrepreneur magazine is write a profile about me and my company. They're probably not, you know, um, <laughs> it's the reality of it. They're looking for things that, you know, their audience will be interested in. And so kind of putting yourself in the shoes of a blogger can help. You know, if you're a, say, say I'm a blogger, the business insider, I know that every month I need to get a certain million page views per month. That's my job. And so, you know, what headlines, what type of stories 
are going to get people to click on them, what type of stories they're going to share online, um, how can I get to that page view quota. And so kind of putting yourself in those shoes and thinking backwards as a business owner and being like, how can I create a story that would help that guy out, you know, get him a bunch of page views is, an easy, is kind of the first step in doing it. Hmm, interesting. So you're saying certainly product does come first and hopefully the cream should rise to the top. That being said, it, with that maybe that 80-20 rule that like 20% of your time should be spent on trying to market yourself in some way. You can't just spend 100% of your time on your product and keep your head down and just hope that you know somebody likes your product so much that they write about it. Sure. Or like at least you can expedite the timeline a lot. A good example is Robert Greene might be a good example. So Robert Greene is the author of the 48 Laws of Power, uh, Mastery, the 50th Law, The Art of Seduction, and some other huge books. And you know the 48 Laws of Power... It took maybe four years to get on the New York Times bestseller list. It was kind of a slow burn. It came out. Nobody really knew Robert, but it was just such a good book that, you know, over time, word of mouth took over. And now, you know, here we are, I think 10, 15 years later, still selling enough copies to occasionally bounce onto the list, you know, still selling kind of like uh, a significant amount of copies every month. But fast forward, when he was releasing Mastery's most recent book, we helped him out a little bit on it. And uh, that book, you know, come launch week, we did a kind of a, a concentrated effort to really make it almost like a surround sound. So when that book came out, it, seemed, it was seemingly everywhere. And again, it was just another killer book that, you know, was extremely well written, but this time it bounced onto the bestseller list the first week and stayed there, you know, for years, you know, a year afterwards. And so I guess like what I'm saying is that like creating a great product should be your first and foremost goal rather than kind of trying to think ahead and jump ahead to all these crazy marketing schemes because um, that's not a great thing to do. But once you do it, you shouldn't certainly shouldn't just leave everything to chance. You never know what you can get just by, you know, sending an email to somebody or putting it on different people's radars. Just like, you know, again, tracing back to the Young and Six story, had we waited and hoped that different people would have, or even after we got it on Rose Courts, hoping that Pitchfork would have seen it in their Twitter feed, uh, was again, leaving a little bit too much of chance. So just a quick email was enough to kind of uh, push it over the edge. Yeah, totally, man. Maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't have, but why Why bother <laughs> with the chance that they wouldn't? Right. What you say like rings so true and makes so much sense about really needing to spend your time honing and crafting your skill and your product or whatever it is. Because obviously, if you if you manage to succeed and you, you do a lot of stuff on the media side and you know you get some people to write articles about you, people are going to come and check out your product. And if your product isn't ready yet, they're going to see this really shitty version of your product and then they're not going to want to see it anymore. You know, like it's like you kind of get one shot for people to come and check out your product. And if it's not in its best possible form, that's not going to bode very well for you. Right. And even more than just journalists and press, because a lot of times I think people overemphasize the importance of press and like uh, media attention particularly. You know, it feels good. It feels great when people write about you just because, you know, at an ego level, it's like, wow, it's amazing. But like direct translation to sales, you know, is always kind of iffy at the very best. Um, and so like really, I think that what you're missing if you don't spend a lot of time on the product is like, your consumers, your people, like, why should they care about you? Because again, word of mouth is by far the most important thing that's going to grow a product. Um, I even remember I read a McKinsey article not too long ago that 50% of the buying decisions are because of word of mouth. And, you know, you're going to trust your friends more than any article or advertisement or anything along those lines. So really just kind of making sure that you have a product that people care about and feel good enough about to kind of uh, tell their friends about is really, I think, the goal of setting it off. Yeah, definitely, man. So uh, you've 
talked a lot about a lot of like different super interesting cutting edge ways to market things. Um, how do you stay up on like the current happenings and techniques and stuff like that in the marketing world? Because I, I, it's such this ever changing and crazy business. I got a degree in marketing, but I graduated college nine years ago. Like I might as well have graduated nine hundred years ago. It, it's like irrelevant, you know. So, uh, like, how are you? How are you keeping up on everything? Yeah, more, I mean, I think that even more so than specific techniques, specific techniques, we look at, I look at other book launches when they're coming out, I look at other products when they come out, that type of thing. But, you know, if you really want to be cutting edge, what you should be doing is trying to think of the platforms that aren't really being focused on yet. And, then, you know, how can you do something creative there uh, in the marketing world? So, you know, a good example is we did one of the big, the first big collaborations with BitTorrent and Tim Ferriss. You know, he put out extra material around his book on BitTorrent, and that ended up pushing tens of thousands of sales of his book. Um, we did a BitTorrent bundle with Zed's Dead around their last album, and that got downloaded well over a million times. So, you know, BitTorrent was something that people were looking at in a strange eye, but like, you know, if you're really looking at it, it's like, well, that's kind of a new, interesting platform. How can we do something with them? Um, because it'll, A, it'll get press attention just because you're doing something unique, but B, you know, they haven't fully figured out uh, how to charge people for it, I guess would be a way to look at it as mm -hmm. well. So if you mm -hmm. kind of like help them create that model for marketing, then you, know, you might get some of the rewards of figuring it out. Uh, another good example is Young and Sick was the first musician they ever premiered on Ello. I don't know if you remember Ello. is that social network that really arose after a lot of people went away from Facebook. They were looking for one where you didn't have to use your real name and all that. Hmm. And so, you know, we looked, when we saw Ello going out, it was like, oh, that's a cool social platform. It's like, well, how can we use that um, for our clients and create some type of interesting collaboration with them uh, and that type of stuff? Or even, you know, Rap Genius is another one. We put book uh, excerpts on Rap Genius and had the author ran annotate his, uh, you know, his own writings on Rap Genius, which just typically, you know, exclusively for songs and rap songs of that. And so just looking at all these different exciting and interesting platforms out there and how you can kind of like tie that into your marketing is another way uh, to kind of be on the cutting edge of it, I guess. Yeah, definitely, man. Are, are you, do you have like a personal checklist as a way to weed out the good or bad ideas and as a way to weed out the good or bad uh, platforms to try? Because obviously today's landscape, it's like every day a new big thing comes out you know yeah. it's like there's periscope um it's like literally every day there's like a new thing that's like i'm telling you like this is going to be the next big thing and obviously they can't all be the next big thing so are you just throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks or do you have like a little checklist to go over sometimes you know at this point luckily i have the other three partners at brass check that we all kind of throw around ideas and uh make sure that something would be something we kind of like put our finger to the wind and see if that would work out um but then the day like it really doesn't cost that much to try stuff. So like you, you mentioned Periscope, one of the things that we want to do, we haven't done it yet, is like just to have an author read his entire book on Periscope. That would be a cool stunt that would probably get some type of marketing attention. Um, or just, you know, anything that you do. And that's not very a very costly thing. And so if it works, it works. If it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. But I think that just being open to trying things like that will set you apart quite a bit just because, you know, at least in my own experience with Brass Check, we have authors that come in and they're like, we want to do all these crazy things. You know, they're down from day one. They want the crazy ideas. But then when it comes time to pull the trigger, nobody actually doesn't do anything. Um, and so, you know, 
if you're the one who tries it, it might not it might not work, but nobody will ever hear about it. But if it works, you know, it could end up being a cool story. So I would just say be open for experimentation and see what happens. Yeah, definitely. What are some of your suggestions for like personal marketing to try and build up your own brand? It, would that just be like reiterating the same things we've already talked about? Yeah, a lot of it. You know, I, I wish I was better at personal marketing myself because I know a lot of times you can get wrapped up in if you're a big company particularly, it can be hard, but, you know, trying to build a platform of some type is important. If we're talking specifically about publishing these days, you know, publishers give book deals based upon email lists. That's kind of the deal right now. And so, you know, I'm not saying that you should start an email list, but you should probably start an email list. Um, <laughs> also beyond that, just like a way for at least people to find you and see what type of ideas you have. And then again, like, you know, writing is an easy one. So creating content and not just creating content, for your own blog, you know, trying to find a, you know, a blog to write a guest post for, or just kind of like always trying to find and take your ideas and place them in front of new people um, is pretty important. So I would, I would definitely, I'm definitely a big fan of content marketing, creating, you know, uh, new content and trying to place it at, you know, different places. So things like that, like, let's say I am a professional photographer Mm -hmm. and let's say I just love taking photos. Like I Mm -hmm. hate writing. I just hate it. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, and I, and am I, I like hearkening back to like my, my teenage self. It's like, I would, I would then view doing some of those things as like selling out, you know, it's like, well, I'm an artist, like, and I'm selling out if I'm doing these things that I don't really even want to be doing or that I don't feel like are coming from a natural place for me. Um, do you feel like that, that some of those things are such like rock solid pieces of advice? It's like you're, you kind of just got to bite the bullet and do it. Like what? start up some sort of newsletter. I don't care whether or not you don't want to do it. I, I think that like, you know, it always comes from, from an authentic place. And I understand the hesitation there because I feel the exact same way. You know, it takes a certain little level of arrogance to think that people uh, want to hear what you have to say, right? I think, <laughs> Absolutely. That that's, I think that's why like some of the best inner info marketers are just like complete weirdos that nobody would ever want to hang out with in real life. But like, um, so, you know, it's always like, oh, well, do they really want to, who am I to say all this type of stuff? I guess is one that I always think about. But at the end of the day, like everybody throughout their life has something that they can teach you. And, you know, you have a certain set of skills that probably nobody else has and somebody could definitely benefit from. Um, and so I would kind of like keep that in mind. And if you're not the most comfortable when specifically writing, maybe there's a video that you could create, you know, maybe you could become really popular, you know, on Vine creating just like five different five second in, like instructional videos with, for your photos, uh, maybe creating photo collages, or maybe just using your photos with brief kind of captions underneath them on medium. You know, there's a lot of different ways to play around with it, but I would always keep in mind that you do certainly, everybody has a certain set of, uh, knowledge that I'm sure other people would love to hear. That's such a good point, man. I love the fact that you talk about the mental piece of that because that's so true that maybe it's not the fact that you don't like writing. Maybe it's the fact that you feel like you don't have anything good to say, but uh, you got to be a a bigger fan of yourself than that. Um, Let's talk about the lessons that you learned from starting up your hostel last year, which has already had just phenomenal success. So uh, congratulations, by the way, like that's incredible to have such success so quickly. That's amazing. Yeah, it was definitely unexpected, and it was certainly kind of like uh, different than I that I ever uh, anticipated going into a brick and mortar business today. You know, I, I deal with a lot of kind of online stuff, so having to get approval from the city and different things like that was certainly a, a testing period. But it was one that I learned just so much from, and uh, just it was a very valuable experience. Uh, I think that early on, one of the biggest things that we learned, and one that I always go back to, is that you know we're a hostel and 
it's always kind of like this unspoken thing that hostels serve breakfast, but there's never, there's no rule that hostels have to serve breakfast. And so early on, I was kind of looking at all the reviews online of other hostels and they were always complaining about breakfast. So everywhere was complaining, you know, the breakfast is terrible. It was rotten eggs. It was this, it was that. And so instead of trying to like figure out how we were going to serve the best breakfast ever, we just kind of thought, why are we going to serve breakfast at all? Let's just take that out of the equation and see how it works out. And so far, it's worked out great. Yeah, we, we have great reviews. Last year, we were the highest rated on HostelWorld.com, which is the biggest uh, hostel rating site out there. And so I think any in any industry, it's always easy to try to think of competitors' weaknesses as advantages and something that you can one-up them on. But try to think, like, why are the competitors failing at that? And is it something that really is beneficial to my clients? Um, that's one of the biggest things we learned early on. Brent, you have so uh, I'm going to put a link to the the article that I read where you go over that's that the point you just gave was the first point in this article um, that you wrote for Observer, but it is such an unbelievably well written, awesome article about these. Um, eight, it's eight lessons, right? Like that you learned mm-hmm. when you were starting your your business, and uh, man, each one is so well thought out, and are things that. Are, are not at all the typical things that people tell you and like, oh, this is what you need to work on with your business or, oh, keep this in mind. Like zero of the points that you had on your list are typical things that people would say. And as someone who, you know, started my own business in the past year, it's like every single thing on your list was very apparent. You know, it's like I've experienced these things or I wish that someone had told me these things or, or whatever it was. And you, you have such an unbelievable way, um, and it's like everything's like coming full circle now, learning more about you and your your marketing brain and stuff in uh, the way that you work in marketing. You have such this wonderful way of really looking at things from outside the box. Like a lot of people and a lot of companies strive for that and they like talk about, you know, we need to think outside the box. We need to try to go at this from a different angle. But they're so deep inside the box that they just like can't get out of it, you know? Um, and man, your way of thinking is so good. And that, yeah, that point is so well made that just because somebody else is doing something poorly, that doesn't mean that that's now an opportunity for you. Maybe there's a really good reason why they're doing it poorly. And that's because it's really hard to do. <laughs> and you should just skip it entirely and move on to something else. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. It's, it's going back to what we said just a minute ago, like putting that out, I was like, who am I to like give business lessons? You know, like I have a hostel in Austin and it's like my first year of business. How am I going to like relay anything that is interesting to anybody? And so I had those same hesitations uh, about putting out anything. And I was like, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. But since I put that out, I've gotten maybe 20 or 30 emails from people just, you know, pouring out like, oh, this has helped me so much. And it's really emphasized the fact that like, yeah, we all have something to teach. And even if, yeah, you just have a a small hostel in Austin, Texas, uh, it's, you can say something that really resonates with people. Um, and it's been a great experience as well. Absolutely, man. Brent, normally this would be the part of the show where we would ask you for some advice or I would ask you for some advice, but that's been basically the entirety of the show. So I'm not going to do that, but, um, I'm going to go ahead and put up links on the half hour intern website for everything, like for your article, for your hostel. I definitely want to come stay there. Like I'm just such a fan of you now after talking to you. Um, you're just such a, a bright and amazing person. So thanks so much for coming on the show, man. No, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. You know, I, I don't do too many. I have never done these. So this is this has been a lot of fun. Uh, great connecting. And yeah, I'm looking forward to hosting you. You know, uh, come on down. First beers on me. And we'll have a good time. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Brian. Take care, man. See you. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, 
and I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby, I should totally be on this show then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.